Welcome to Smart Habits for Translators, a podcast for translators by translators, bringing you simple strategies to build better habits and improve your business and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Madalena sanchez Ampalo and Veronica de Michelis. Like you, we are professional translators striving to balance the challenges that come with building a career and maintaining clarity and boundaries between work and personal life. Welcome to Smart Habits for Translators. Today, we're excited to bring a topic to the podcast that we know many translators are interested in learning more about. If you've ever heard a colleague mention working in the premium market, you may have thought, hmm, how do I tap into that area of the market? After all, who doesn't want to work for clients who value our work and pay premium rates, right? Well, we found the perfect guest to share insights with us about working and thriving in the premium market. We're excited to welcome our colleague and friend, Michael Schubert, to the podcast. Michael is an ATA-certified German-to-English translator based in San Francisco, providing premium translation services with a focus on corporate communications in the software industry. He is also an adjunct professor for German to English translation at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Michael earned degrees in music performance and German language in his native Los Angeles, including a scholarship year at the University of Heidelberg, where he studied musicology and German. Following his graduation, he worked in Germany for 10 years as an orchestral flutist. In 2000, Michael moved to San Francisco and launched his translation career. His clients have included small and medium-sized software companies in Germany, as well as artists, orchestras, musicologists, and music publishers in Europe and North America. In addition to translating and teaching, Michael regularly presents at the ATA annual conference and elsewhere on the subject of business skills, pricing strategies, and successful client relationships. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Michael. When we thought of you for the podcast, we thought, why have we not asked him before to come yeah. on here and talk to us? So yeah, I really have enjoyed what you've shared about, as Veronica said, business skills and pricing strategies and just having a client relationship that is more about a partnership than a transactional type of thing. Just to kick things off, we'd like to hear from you and share with our listeners more about what you do, where you're based and what services you offer, and maybe even how your career has evolved over time. Yes, thank you. Well, you covered it pretty well in your intro. As you said, I started my business in 2000, and I've been based in and around San Francisco now for the last 23 years. When I first started out, I think like most people, I worked in all kinds of subject areas and for all kinds of clients. I worked mostly for direct clients right from the very start, but I also worked for big agencies, mega agencies, and small boutique agencies in the U.S. and Europe. Over time, I think my business evolved the way most people's do. I've always been busy, so quite naturally, I started shedding subject areas and clients that were less attractive. Now I cover a narrower range of subjects, and for quite some time now, I've had only what I consider really top clients. They appreciate my work. They pay my rates without question. They pay promptly. They care about quality. They engage with me in discussions about outcomes and language issues instead of arguing over prices and things like that. So that's, that's been the evolution, just the natural, natural narrowing of my client base and my subject areas. Yeah, every translator's dream. 
But, it, you know, that's something, too, that I think, I mean, you say that it came naturally, and I can see what you're saying, but I also think that for some people it doesn't feel like it's a natural thing. It feels a bit difficult to get to that point. So we wanted to ask you, what are some smart habits that have been crucial in your career over time to get to this point? From my childhood, I've always been very organized and thorough, probably annoyingly so, with apologies to my family. But I think, I, I think those attributes are helpful for anyone in any professional career, but they're critical for people who are self-employed. So I'd say the habit that served me well in my translation business is really managing data well. And by data, I mean not only the obvious file data, but also email threads, my own job log, file versions, my translation memory, of course, my term base, and my invoices, just all of the data involved in my business, managing that really well. And then I guess on sort of a softer skill point, I like to get up early. I'm a morning person, and the early morning is my favorite time of work. I think that's probably a smart habit or a good habit because getting a jump on the day always makes you feel a little ahead of the curve. It's also when Franz Schubert did all of his composing, by the way, so maybe that's what inspired me. <laughs> and what time is early for you? What time do you start working? <laughs> well, today I, today I got up at 5 and was at my desk working by 5.45. So, yeah, it's not usually, it's more like 5.30 that I get up. And you have clients in Europe, too, so I'm sure that's a big part of it as well, right? Yeah, exactly. It's helpful. And so what's maybe a habit you had earlier in your career that you no longer practice, and, and why not? Well, I'd say, I don't think I've shed any habits per se, but I collect a lot less data than I used to. At the beginning, I wanted to know everything about my business, what was working, what wasn't, how much time I was spending where. And I used to track how many hours I worked a day and how many days I worked a year. I don't track those two particular metrics anymore. But of course, I mean, I still know how much I earn per client. And if, if a job was not profitable. In other words, if I spent more time than I quoted or whatever, I make note of that so that I can learn from that going forward. Yeah. So I still track a lot of data, but not as obsessively. I mean, mission accomplished, right? I learned so much about myself and my habits by tracking all this data early on. And now I don't need to quite obsessively track so much as I used to. Now, Michael, you're known for presenting on topics related to entering and thriving in the premium market. I personally attended a few of those at the ATA annual conferences. Why do you think it's important for translators to consider their services premium when it comes to the clients they serve? Well, I think it's always important for anyone in any career to consciously develop and move up in your career, right? It's, it's good for our own self-esteem and self-satisfaction. But it's also a survival technique because threats to your career from automation, from outsourcing, you know, and automation is a topic in the translation industry, those threats always come from below. So moving up market is also a survival technique, right? If, if we linger on the lower rungs of the ladder, we eventually get eaten by a robot. So we don't want that. So as far as premium in the translation market, this means honing our skills, always improving our services, raising our rates, of course, cultivating better clients, as I talked about, and just generally looking up and always trying to see what's above me, where can I go from here, and how can I manage my data better, how can I improve my translation technique, continuing education and professional development plays into all of that. So 
I guess your question was, why should translators strive for this? Well, as I said, just for career development and for survival from the threats to the lower end of the market. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm sure a part of it, you know, in addition to the skills and how you serve your clients, an important factor here is your professional image. So we wanted to ask you, what should translators consider when it comes to their identity as a professional in the premium market? Well, once we've gained our degrees and our certification and advanced degrees or any academic titles or anything we we can use to distinguish ourselves, once we've honed our craft and are confident in our ability to offer high-quality services, then we have to project this. So that's how we brand ourselves online, in how we speak to prospective clients, in how we price our services, in how we communicate about projects, always showing to the client in our conversations that we're detail-oriented and that we care about outcomes. That all plays into our identity. So, I mean, our online identity, right, our website and our LinkedIn profile and things like that, but also the identity we project in our communications. I agree with that. And I think the consistency of it across different platforms and just the way you carry yourself in different areas is, is key as well to that, the consistency there. So, Michael, one thing that a lot of people equate with a premium market is charging higher rates than those who are not considered premium, maybe in the same industry or field. So can you talk to us about your experience with raising prices over the years as well as maybe some value-based pricing, which I know you talk about in your presentations, and what you've learned from sharing this topic in the presentations that you give? To the question of raising rates, prices quite naturally go up over time with inflation, but they also go up when more is being offered. So... I mean, first of all, we should never be shy or reluctant about communicating price increases, even if we're just keeping up with inflation. That's an expectation, and we should present it as such. But if we're also developing professionally, improving our skills, if we feel I'm a better translator now than I was five years ago or whatever, then we're offering better services, and that should be reflected too. Raising your prices ahead of inflation is a signal that you feel you're offering more. It's also a reaction to you know, supply and demand. If you have a lot of demand on your services, absolutely, your prices should be outpacing inflation. And of course, when new clients, as, as many others have pointed out, when new clients come on board, that's an opportunity to just jump to a different price tier. So that on the subject of raising rates, I, I don't understand why anybody should be shy or reluctant about that. Nobody's ever shy about announcing to us that their rates are going up, so we shouldn't be either. Values-based pricing you talked about, yes, that's very important. That can mean a couple different things. It can mean charging more for high-risk, high-profile, high-value text. So, for example, website content, where there's going to be a lot of back and forth and a lot of coordinating and tweaking and double-checking and then a final check and a third check and a ninth check, et cetera. So that kind of high-profile content can certainly be charged more, just as things like slogan development, for example, if you're working with your clients to craft their English or your target language text, you know, that's a different level of service that can be priced accordingly and always is in all other industries that deal with that. But secondly, value-based pricing can also mean making sure that you're charging for the time you spend communicating with the client. If the client is very communication needy, for example, or if there's just a lot of coordination, or if you end up doing their project management for them, which often happens, we can't be left holding the bag for this without invoicing for it. Also, cleaning up 
the file format. Sometimes the source file is kind of a mess and you need to clean it up so that the target is clean. Correcting them in the translation and documenting them for the client is a courtesy. I do that with every job and I don't think I've, I mean, I rarely find a source text that is perfect. Right? So, and it's a huge benefit for the client when you provide them with a list of errors that they can then fix. So that's a value you add. And we don't want to be disincentivized from providing all of these time-consuming extra services that enhance the value of our translation by, for example, charging by the word, which disincentivizes doing any of those things. Yeah, and I don't know if you've come across this, but I have come across several new clients in the past few years who want to force the question about charging by the word. And you'll give them a rate or something, and then they'll say, well, is this by the word? Is this by the line? Is this by the, you know, it's because we've taught them that, I think. I mean, in our industry, we've taught them to expect that because, you know, they heard from somebody somewhere that that's how things are done. And it's very hard to undo that sometimes with clients who could be very good clients because they think, well, this is the standard. And I think we need to work on that. Yes, absolutely. You're right. That infection comes from the translation agency market, the the big agencies which peddle this model. But I'll give you a counterexample. My best client for over 20 years now is a German software company. And they came to me originally, they found my website online, and they came to me because they had been working with various agencies and they never liked the product they were getting. They were being shuffled around to various freelancers that they never met. So there was no consistent voice and they were just getting mediocre quality. And so they said, we want to work directly with a translator. And we've been working together successfully ever since. If your clients are coming to you and they're talking about word pricing, it probably means that they've worked with a big translation agency in the past. And yet here they are working with you. Why? Remind them why and tell them this model is part of the whole mindset in that mega agency market that you want to get away from. I can't provide you with the best services if I'm counting words and trying to finish your job as quickly as possible so that I don't lose money on it. There's your soundbite, Veronica. Yes, I love it. <laughs> I like that. I think that's really true. And that is something that it's definitely difficult to explain to a client that that's maybe not the way that you work, but you need to do it. And I think that that's one way to differentiate yourself. And they can choose to go elsewhere or they can choose to stay with you. So yeah, I like that. Thank you for saying that. So Michael, are there any specific steps that translators should take to transition into working in the premium market? Well, I mean, first and foremost, just to be clear, we have to attain premium skills, right? One doesn't just declare oneself premium. So it begins, you know, by excelling in our studies for those students who may be listening to this, excelling not only in our core language skills, but also for independent translators, it's very important, computer skills. You have to be a whiz at the computer. You have to have a good command of of a good translation environment tool like Trado Studio or MemoQ or something like that. You have to acquire good business skills if you're going to be an independent translator. And you have to have good communication skills. You can't not respond to emails or respond ambiguously to emails. Or No, we have to be clear and good communicators. So all of that in the envelope of attaining premium skills. Then we must seek out serious clients. A lot of people start by working for big translation agencies and That is a beginner's market, I think. I don't think it's where people should be left hanging when they're intermediate or advanced or premium translators, unless these agencies change their mindset 
But right now they operate like the fast food industry, essentially. The people at the top earn lots of money, but the whole model is built on underpaid, underappreciated, overworked, unhappy labor with zero benefits. And that's not a machine we should enable. To me, it's a job training program. It was for me to some extent because I entered as a second career and I was learning on the job, so to speak, in my early years. I always was very conscientious, but you know, I just you just need to translate several million words before you start getting really good at it. So fine, it's a paid internship as I see it, but you know, you don't stay at an internship for 20 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yes. That's a really, really good perspective. So in your opinion, Michael, what helps a translator thrive in this area of the market? A lot of the things we've already talked about, again, just to repeat myself, first, you attain the premium skills. Secondly, the identity we alluded to before, make sure that you confidently present who you are and what you can do. If you have a PhD, that PhD should be staring people in the face everywhere they go, everywhere they see your name, that doctor or that PhD should be attached, right? Or if you're a certified translator from the American Translator Association or whatever your branding identity qualifications are, they should always be staring clients in the face. So that's your identity and your branding. Then always seek to continually refresh and improve your services through continuing development. And The annual ATA conference is a perfect opportunity for that. It's essentially your one-stop smorgasbord for all kinds of professional development opportunities. So always be working on your skills and improving them. You should always feel each year that you're a better translator than you were last year. And that also makes you confident in interacting with clients, you know, with that mindset and in raising your prices and in seeking better clients. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, really. You, The more skilled and the more knowledgeable you are in the area where you serve your clients, um, you know, just prove that you can speak their language and know exactly where they're coming from and what they need. So speaking of improving your skills and your knowledge, what kinds of professional development opportunities should translators look for to support the kind of work they want to do for the kinds of clients that they want to work with long term? Definitely sort of standard language industry professional development opportunities. So I mentioned the ATA conference, like I said, which is a fantastic source all on its own. There's also the many webinars offered by ATA now, language organizations in your country, if you're listening from another country, you know, that are similar. Secondly, you can find tool-specific things. So if you want to improve your software skills on a particular translation industry tool, then you know that vendor may offer workshops or certifications even to demonstrate and attain your expertise there. And thirdly, within the industry you're targeting. So, you know, if you work for the software industry, for example, and you go to software industry events to hear what the industry is talking about, how they're talking about it, right, as linguists are always listening to the words people use and the language they use around it. So that can be very helpful. And I get a lot of that in San Francisco. I work mostly for the software industry and living in San Francisco It's just you live and breathe it all day long. Every billboard you see is for some sort of software product. And every neighbor you'll ever have works in the software industry. And, you know, the homeless people have smartphones. And, you know, it's that's just the way San Francisco lives and breathes that. So it's like being in fashion and living in Paris or something, Mm -hmm. right? So anyway, industry, to answer your question, industry-specific continuing education opportunities can be really good to fortify your specializations. 
And I think that oftentimes we overlook those because we just look at the ones in our own, you know, fields or, you know, within the translation world, I should say, probably, because although there's some that are very good, you can find some really great stuff if you look outside specifically into your areas of specialization. So, Michael, do you have any other tips for listeners on working in the premium market that you think are worth sharing with with everybody listening? A few. So, use serious pricing models. We talked before about word pricing and that it's not the best model because it commoditizes what's really a high-end intellectual service. And it keeps us talking about pennies, which is demeaning. So a more serious pricing model is to bill your services hourly, and even better is to move toward lump sum pricing. Once people know more or less what your services cost and know what to expect, I like to just sort of move away and, and say, you know, this job will be 500 euros or whatever, rather than saying, you know, this is this job is going to be three hours or or whatever. That also makes it easier or it eliminates the need rather to announce price increases. When the metric you use to compute your lump sub price changes, you don't need to announce that to the client. You simply start quoting higher lump sum prices. But I think when you when you use a lump sum price, you should also be able to break it down if the client wants that, just so they don't think you're um, making it up or you know or pulling yeah. it off the top of your head. <laughs> so serious pricing models, but also serious prices, right? The actual level of the pricing should be serious. That means no two-figure invoices and no invoices that end in seventeen cents or whatever. Every invoice should end with a zero point zero zero. So. What I already said before, always improving your game and always keeping up with technology and looking around the corner, because that means not getting left behind. It's not acceptable for an independent translator to not work in a, with a translation environment tool or to not use terminology tools. It's just not acceptable. It's not the 1990s anymore. We can't afford to <laughs> leave all that behind. <laughs> yeah, very true. And I think that's obvious over the years, but now I think more than ever, that's very clear. So thank you for saying that. Finally, Michael, if you could give your past self a piece of advice, what would it be? <laughs> Charge more. <laughs> I, don't mean to, I don't mean to keep talking unduly about money uh, because certainly money is not all I care about. I'm very passionate about linguistic nitty gritty, as my clients all know. But you know, we're talking here about the premium market and a lot of that is when I say charge more, I say this because when I walk the halls of ATA conferences and when I talk to my colleagues, I meet all kinds of brilliant people who are not charging enough. And I think that's too bad. We seem to have a confidence problem or something in our industry. So at the beginning, I think I had no clue. And I, you know, heard a little bit of, you know, so-called going rates and I charged them. I quickly realized that that wasn't enough and I started charging more and then more and then more. But I think there was always a lot of ceiling space above me. And I just didn't know that at the beginning. I started learning that over time and I'm still learning it, I would say. So that's me talking to my past self, but it's also me talking to people entering the profession today. If somebody tells you that, oh, well, for Japanese to English, the going rate is 18 cents. That's nonsense. If, uh, first of all, it doesn't have to be a word price. Second, there is no going rate. And third, it depends, it depends, it depends. It depends on the skills of the translator. It depends on the budget of the client. It depends on the value of the job. It depends on 
the whole composite service and what you're going to offer. So offer the client as much as you can, as much detail and quality, but then charge accordingly. Well said. Oh, I love it. I love that. Thank you. This was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Michael, again, for chatting with us about entering and working in the premium market. I know it's a topic that many translators want to know about and talk more about, but not everyone knows exactly how to start and what's needed to be in this market. So I'm sure this episode will inspire many colleagues to think about what value they're providing, what skills do they have to move into that sector of the market and how can they differentiate themselves and be more confident about the value they're offering and their prices. And before we go, we'd like to ask you to join us for a special segment. We call this segment Guest Favorites. This is where we ask our guests to share a favorite book or resource or a gadget that they love to use in your daily work life. So is there anything that you'd like to recommend? Yes, I would. A book that I love is called, Is That a Fish in Your Ear? Translation and the Meaning of Everything. It was written back in 2011 by David Bellows from Princeton University. So it's not a new book, but I rarely hear people talking about it. I think it's the best book about translation I've ever read. And I've begun making my first semester students at the Middlebury Institute read it sort of in lieu of a class on translation theory, which they don't get. So I think it's just a really interesting book about what is translation, how does language function, how do different languages function. It's really nerdy and and I love it. It's just a great book. And then on the sort of workstation environment gadgetry front, I use an Ember mug, which I love. For those who don't know it, it's a mug with a little battery in the bottom and you place it on a charging coaster and it keeps your coffee and tea at exactly the right temperature so that you can sip it slowly instead of gulping it and running back to the microwave every half hour. Yes, it's a good investment. I concur with that. I have one too. (laughs) In fact, I've been trying to think if I could justify getting the travel one, which is taller. And (laughs) I had the... Did you have it? I sorry to interrupt. Yes, I had the no, travel no, mug briefly. Uh, yeah, I I just I prefer the the desktop one. The travel one, I mean the battery, you know, if you're going to take a trip that's long, it's not going to last you very long and I've just sort of gotten away from drinking warm things in the car, but yeah, that's just my own personal experience. Yeah, I have the one for the desk as well. In fact, I should have gotten the larger version. I have the smaller one. You should have. (laughs) I have the larger one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, good to know. Good. All right. Well, thanks for joining us again today, Michael. And before we sign off, where can everybody learn more about you and find you online? My website is michaelschubert.com, my name, and links to my LinkedIn, Twitter, and blog are all at the top of the homepage. Perfect. And we will add those as well to the show notes for this episode. And that's a wrap. As always, in a couple of days, our email subscribers will get a summary of the episode with all the links to the resources we mentioned today. If you liked this episode, we would love it if you shared it with your colleagues and friends and left us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This only takes a minute and we have recorded a quick video tutorial to show you how to do it. You'll find it in our show notes. Talk to you soon.